The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your copy of God's Word and open to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Let me give you a little uh, a primer on the way to Romans 5. We, we're going to be in this passage for a few weeks. Originally, I was going to do Romans 5, 6 through 11 in one sermon. In fact, I've done it in one sermon before. And the more I looked at it, it's like walking through the museum, your favorite museum, and you get to a room and every single work of art, every single painting, you want to stop and gaze at. So I divided it into five different sections, and we're going to try to stick to five sermons to get through these six verses, but even looking over the notes last night, I felt like we could spend three weeks in just this one verse. We are in, um, I just have to tell you, we're in my favorite part of Romans, and Romans is my favorite book in the Bible. I, I just feel like these are, these are precious times. And sometimes when you're studying as a pastor, a preacher, you, you, you don't get to take everything that you get in the study into the pulpit. And it's, I liken it to having a five-passenger car and you got nine kids and someone doesn't get to go to Disneyland. You can't bring it all. Well, even in one verse, it's just almost impossible. This is the densest part of the richness of Paul's explanation of the gospel. The series is going to be, What's So Great About the Gospel? And in verses 6 through 11, he outlines the greatness of the gospel. Every phrase is just pregnant with gospel truth. Today we're going to look at the fact that the gospel satisfies the greatest need. That's the first reason that the gospel is so great. It satisfies the greatest need. We're going to look at verse 6 today, but let me read verses 6 through 11 just to put that in context. Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, shall we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved. By his life. And not only this, we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Invictus is one of the most famous poems in the English language. It's a short poem by William Ernest Henley, who lived 1849 to 1903. It was written in 1875 and published in 1888. Originally, it had no title. The title Invictus, which is Latin for unconquered or unconquerable, was added later by an editor when the poem was included in the Oxford Book of English Verse. No doubt you study this in English literature. 
It's a very short poem. Let me read it to you. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms, but the horror of the shade and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I heard this poem described by a preacher one time as an ant standing on a railroad track with his fist up at the locomotive that was about to run him over. It's a good description. It's been used in countless movies and productions, quoted scores of times. You might remember it was the final statement of the Oklahoma City bomber, Timothy McVeigh, right before he was executed. The poem's meaning is plain. I'm in charge, not just of my life. I am in charge of my destiny. It's quite a statement. I'm the one who can control my life, my fate, my eternal destination. The Bible's testimony, however, is the exact opposite. What do you believe about man's ability? What do you believe about your ability to control your fate, to determine your eternal destination? Now, we have to be a little bit balanced here. God calls us to believe. God calls us to understand the gospel. And in that, we have a responsibility and a response before God. But yet, this passage and the testimony of Scripture says that ultimately, that responsibility is entirely heaven-born. When I entered seminary, I was faced with the sovereignty of God and salvation in my very first semester. I grew up in a Baptist church that was largely Armenian. We'll talk about what that means a little later. And I was um, averse to the idea that God may somehow interfere with man's free will, that God may be somehow in charge of people who would believe. And I still have questions. Uh, Someone says, are you a Calvinist? I always like to answer, I'm a Calvinist with questions. I'm a Calvinist with tensions. There are things that I can't answer and probably won't be able to until heaven But that first semester was a collision of so many ideologies in my head when I was studying the book of Romans in this passage and the book of Ephesians in the first four verses. And I remember where I was sitting in the downstairs library where they were doing construction. I could hear the the jackhammers up above me. I was in the basement. I remember the, the smell of the library. I remember the temperature of the room. I remember the sounds around me when I finally got to the point where I realized I'm studying this all wrong. What convinced me of God's glory and salvation, God's glory and his sovereignty and salvation, wasn't so much his power and prerogative in heaven, though that's true, and we'll get there in Romans 9. What overwhelmed me was the study of the absolute total depravity and inability of man. 
If we really understand man's true state before God, if we really understand how desperate our situation is before heaven's throne, if we understand how in trouble we are before God, the judge, the sovereignty of God and salvation is not so difficult to understand. I had wrestled with God's sovereignty, man's free will, as I called it at the time many times in the past, but always came to loggerheads with that theology that God was solely the author of salvation. But then when I started studying depravity, or another word for that is inability, my mind quickly began to change. Well, the text before us is one of those passages, as I said, that God used to nudge me toward Reformed theology. It was a watershed in my thinking. Let me give you a quick preview of what's going to come in the next six six verses. Paul is going to answer the question, what is so great about the gospel? Why is this so important? If I can give you kind of a landscape analogy, the book of Romans is the Himalayas. And I really believe these six verses may be Mount Everest. If you are unaffected by the gospel, just read these verses that God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he loved us contextually differently than man loves man. You see that God reached down in condescending love to sinners and wicked rebels and offered them salvation? It's unlike any love any man had ever given We can outline the answer in five points, which will become five different sermons. The first is going to be simply looking at verse 6 today. The gospel satisfies the greatest need. And we'll understand this probably better by saying it like this. Our greatest need is understood by two truths, two points. The first is in the first part of verse 6. Man's desperate helplessness. Man's desperate helplessness. He says, for while we... While we were in the condition of being still bound in helplessness. While we were still helpless. As we've said ever since chapter 1 of Romans, if you're sensitive to being called names, Romans is not the book for you. Just look at what Paul says about us in this passage. We're helpless in verse 6. Ungodly at the end. Thank you very much, Paul. Unrighteous enemies. This doesn't sound like a passage for your self-esteem, does it? But to really understand the gospel, you come to the end of your own self-esteem. And you see that I am not the man who is the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. I am one entirely at the disposal of the true and living and holy God. We're not the masters of our fate. One Greek word explains our entire condition before God. We find that word in our text. It's translated helpless in the New American Standard. It means powerless, weak, ill, sick, inadequate, morally reprehensible, and incapable. Thank you, Paul. Nice word thrown at us. Oftentimes, in Reformed circles, we talk of the doctrine of total depravity. And we have to be careful when we talk about that. I I believe in the total depravity of man, but we have to remember that every man is not as totally depraved in his expression as he could be. Not all of us are axe murderers. 
Not all of us are sitting in on capital, uh, uh, from a capital offense on death row. Not all of us are as bad as we could be, which leads some people to doubt total depravity. Maybe a better way to understand that is it's a phrase that's, that's come around in reform circles in recent years. And it's to talk about total depravity in terms of total inability. That's what this word captures, our total inability Jeremiah 17.9. Just listen to this quick tour. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 13, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also, can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? Isaiah 1 says, the whole body is sick from the head to the sole of the feet. How, how bad is our condition? I, I think we talk about how we're, we're sinful, we, we're, we're this, sin, this much sinful, someone may be more sinful than us, and we all have this comparison cycle. How bad is it? How bad is our condition? You know this, we talk about this all the time, but try this on, just try this on for a second. Paul says, and you were dead. Let that marinate for a moment. You were, previous to salvation, dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. We're now not only dead, we're being moved along by the worldly forces according to the prince of the power of the air. Now Satan's involved of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now there's a demonic force involved. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Now our flesh is against ourselves. Indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind, internal and external, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Think about that. What children have fathers and mothers, they have parents. Our parents were children of wrath, our wrath. We were born to inherit the wrath of God. That's serious stuff. Second Corinthians 4 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is working in every possible means to blind us. Satan doesn't live in horror movies with demon shaped creatures. I think he laughs at that. Oh, that's what they think I'm like? Let him think that. He's an angel of light. He wants to blind us from looking at Christ to think other things are more beautiful and more beholding than the Savior. 1 Corinthians 1.30, by his doing, by his doing, you are in Christ. In context, Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace you have been saved by faith. And that not of yourself, that not of your being the captain of your destiny, it's the gift of God. It's not as a result of anything you can do, no works. Because if that was the case, you'd brag about it. No man would boast. We could go on for the rest of the afternoon. Can I give you another one? Titus 3. For we also were once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, 
our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us richly through Christ our Savior. There's not one thing that you and I do in that passage. Every part of the action is in God. All this points to man's utter inability to save himself and to be the captain of his fate. One of the worst lies anyone could ever tell themselves is the one that they begin to believe. It's one thing to lie and to deceive people. It's another thing to lie lie and deceive yourself where you actually begin believing the lie that you proffer. One of the greatest lies ever told has two parts. Number one, I can deal with God on my own terms. Number two, I will deal with God in my time, whenever I get to him. As most of you know, my, my historical hero is Jonathan Edwards. Um, he, uh, I feel like his ghost walks through everything I study sometimes. I just hear him, him uh, preaching and hear him, him writing and hear him urging. Jonathan Edwards was the most famous preacher in the English language and most say the most famous preacher since the closing of the canon of Scripture. That's quite a statement. You would expect then the most famous preacher to have preached the most famous sermon. And we all know what that was, right? You read it in English Lit, 10th grade. Sinners, what? In the hands of an angry God. And I remember reading that and Mrs. Copeland just saying, this is really, really sad that people once said this and people believe this. A little context, George Marsden writes about the audience that heard that. Remember, Edwards preached this once in his church with very little, little effect. And then he was uh, called to go to Enfield. Enfield was a, a county, it was a, a, a little province that was uh, uh, largely unaffected by the Great Awakening. And the surrounding pastor would, would take turns going to preach at Enfield. It was July, it was hot, it was muggy, it was humid. People were fanning themselves. George Marsden, Marsden writes... Edwards could, not take for, could take for granted, rather, that the New England audience knew well the gospel remedy. The problem was getting them to seek it. See, there's a difference in knowing about the gospel and knowing our need for the gospel. Edwards understood that the reason people were not running to Christ was that they did not understand how helpless they really were and how bad their state really was. How desperate the need. 1741... He preached at Enfield on the realities of heaven and hell. July 8th was a Wednesday night. Edwards took the pulpit. It should have taken him about 45 minutes to read that sermon. It took him over an hour because he continually had to stop and ask the audience to sit down, quit crying, and be quiet. Stephen Williams was there. He was an eyewitness, and he says this. Before the sermon was done, there was such a great moaning and crying throughout the whole church building. People were screaming, what shall I do to be saved? And oh no, Mr. Edwards, I am going to hell. What shall I do for Christ? Never had that experience preaching. You know that famous paragraph. Let me read it for you. Edwards preached, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much like one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. 
That's, that's pretty bold. He is dreadfully provoked by you. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended God infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet, it is nothing but his own hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. That you were permitted to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason that can be given that you've not gone to hell since you've sat here in the house of God provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yet, there is nothing else that has been given as a reason why you do not at this very moment drop down into hell. Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger that you are in. End quote. All of that comes from one word, helpless, powerless, morally incapable, morally repugnant before God. Edward says elsewhere, the arrow that God shoots to take your and my life has already left the bow. It's pretty vivid imagery, isn't it? Not if, but when. Until we come to the end of ourselves, until we are desperate as these people saying, what must I do to be saved? You cannot be saved. Unless you're at the end of yourself, you'll never find the beginning of Christ. Go back to Romans 8. Flip the page. Excuse me, Romans 3. We studied this a few weeks ago. Verse 10, there's none righteous, not even one. It's pretty comprehensive. None who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they've become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. Their throat's an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps, poisonous snakes, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now when you hear Edwards preach like this. And you consider the gravity of the word. We're helpless and powerless. Utterly inable, incapable and unable. It should make us afraid of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of the knowledge of the Holy One, Proverbs 9, 10 says. How bad is your condition? Do you, have you ever come to realize how bad you need the gospel? How bad you need Christ to do for you what you could never do for yourself? We're blind men in an art gallery. Deaf men at a symphony. 
like trying to pick up a, an FM signal with an AM transmitter, transistor radio, without a battery, broken antenna, every wire's cut, there's no knobs, there's no on-off switch, we have no arms, and the, and the radio's on the moon, and we're dead. That's how desperate. Man is desperately helpless. That brings us, secondly, to Christ's perfect provision. Christ's perfect provision. This next phrase has caused a lot of of ink to be spilled, a lot of trees to be killed in commentaries talking about what this means and what it doesn't mean. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, there we are, called another name again, ungodly. Let's move backwards in this verse. That means that we are in fierce opposition to God and his ways. Un, anti-God, ungodly, anti-God. There is no moral standing with God. I know some people think, well, I'm, this is what Thomas Aquinas taught. Uh, it's called Thomistic theology, Thomistic gnomism. It means we're standing neutral, and there's the bad way and ending in hell, and there's the good way ending in heaven with God. I'm neutral and will choose one way or the other. There's no man who's neutral. We are born with a stiff arm in God's face, helpless and powerless. Not only is that stiff arm in God's face, it is clawing at his eyes, saying, my way, not yours. It is saying, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Ungodly, for the wrath of God, Romans 1.18, is revealed from heaven against all, here's our word, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, We naturally fight against God's sovereign rule and absolute lordship. If you don't believe that, why aren't you perfect? Why do you still sin? Because in the moment of sin, we become what Tozer calls practical atheists. We we believe, well, God may exist, but for this moment, I'm going to choose not to believe he does so that I can enjoy sin, which I consider is greater than God and his ways. Pretty profound ungodly, anti-God in every and any imaginable way. The most unexpected reality here appears in verse 6, though. This is, I just, can we have three more hours, please? In that state, against God, ungodly, anti-God, morally reprehensible against God, helpless, powerless, unable, totally depraved, in that state, look at what it says, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, at the right time, let's talk about this timing. This, is, this has caused a lot of consternation. What does it mean that he did it at the right time? Well, this was not only at the right time in the progression of human history. It was at the right time in reference to our inability. Bound by sin, advancing toward eternity, apart from God and hell, no amount of struggle or effort could ever free us from that trap and that condemnation. The cross happened at the divinely appointed time. Now, let's think about this timing for a second. It's not the right time as opposed to the wrong time. Would there ever be a possibility that Christ would die at the wrong time? Whoops. It was was Monday and not Friday. Or it was 10 years earlier or 10 years later. It's not talking about that timing. This is talking about, go back over to Romans chapter 1 verse 2. 
the gospel of God, the end of one, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. It's the right time in that it was perfectly adjoined to the Old Testament prophecies. Isn't it interesting, too, that, that Christ died before Facebook and before Twitter? He died before social media. He died before television, CNN, Fox News. He died before technology. He died in a world that spoke Greek, in which he probably spoke Aramaic and often conversed in Hebrew. Why? So that it would be in the Greek language at that point in Roman history underneath the Hellenistic rule where the Greeks were, were proxy for, for, for Rome. It, it, everything was perfectly timed, moving from the Old Testament at that time. I think about that sometimes. Well, he, he came before cars. The Son of God came in a time and in an area where he would walk where he was going to go. His ministry was pretty much local. Villages, small groups of people compared to the people who watch the nightly news. But it was perfectly timed in God's Old Testament predictions and providence. Crucifixion then of Jesus Christ is the center point of human history. You believe that? We even our calendars reflect that, don't they? <laughs> AD is in reference to Christ, BC before Christ. And it just used to make me laugh that when I was in college and they would call it BCE before the Christian era. Really, dude. I mean that you think uh, you you sure tricked us. Christ is the centerpiece of that. He died for us, get this, referencing to our time. He died for us before we made any move toward him. He died for us because he he loved us. He did not die for us because he detected in us something that was lovable. Now, let's look at a Greek word that's a small word, uh, huper, translated for. Might be one of the most important words in the whole Bible. He died for us. The Greek word works much like the English word. It has two kinds of of ways you can translate it. He died for us, meaning instead of us, on behalf of us. And he died for us, meaning he did a, a, a beneficence to us, a favor for us, a grace for us. If I go to the store for Kim, that can mean I did it because I was being kind to her, or it can mean I did it instead of her. Both have play here in this word, Christ died for us, as our representative and as our substitute. This is the great doctrine of not only propitiation, but substitutionary atonement. He died instead of us. Look over a second Corinthians chapter 5, a passage you know very well, but one I want you to see. Hope you have it underlined, highlighted, starred, whatever you do in your Bible. We see one of those nuances of four of us for us here in verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him, God made Jesus, he made him who knew no sin 
to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See that on our behalf? That's the four. He made him the noun, sin, on our behalf. I think I've told some of you the story when I was at a Grace Church. Uh, John MacArthur was preaching and there was a man who was uh, from another country and English wasn't his first language. He was visiting that day and John was talking about this and he said, God made Jesus sin on our behalf. The noun, sin. And, and the gentleman in, in, in defending God stood up in the middle of 3,500 people and said, he did not make Jesus sin. And it took John a minute, and he realized that the man interpreted him as saying, I mean, the, the noun sin and the verb sin are the same word, right? That he thought he was saying he made Jesus to, to commit sin. And the Greek is very interesting. It actually, the New American Standard says he made him sin, keeps in italics, to be sin in italics. But think of what that really means. He turned him into the noun sin. What sin? Our sin. Our sin. Now, students, let me ask you a question. Those of you, especially with brothers and sisters, let's just say, let's make up a scenario, which I'm sure never happens in your home, in which your brother or your sister gets in trouble. Trouble enough for the rod of reproof, trouble enough for restrictions, for grounding, you name the, the punishment. Let's say that you're in, in the other room and you hear this going on. And hopefully you're not going, that's good, mom, get him. He, she deserves that, that's great. Let's just say that you hear them getting into some trouble. Can you imagine a scenario in which you would run in and say, mother, father, not mom and dad, and this is formal. Mother, father, my brother has sinned before you and deserves to be grounded for a month. But instead of grounding him, would you ground me instead? Who does that? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> You're saying, not only would I do that, my siblings wouldn't do that for me either, right? That's unnatural. So let's sneak ahead, can we? One would hardly die for a righteous man, he says. We're going to come to this next, next study. Though for perhaps a good one, someone may dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love. You can insert contrary, differently toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, now we find it again, Christ died for us. Sinners, ungodly, helpless, enemies of God. He died for us. Let me give you a hard illustration, okay? Imagine someone in history who is a pronounced, famous, or infamous, I guess we should say sinner, Hussein, Hitler, you name it. When those people come to the judgment, when they come to the end, when they die, I know it's easy for us to say, well, they certainly got what they deserved. And when we do that, we think that we are somehow different than they are. That somehow because they sinned more than us, 
that they deserve hell more than us? You couldn't be more wrong. You and I, what did Jesus say? If you've lusted, you've committed adultery. If you've hated, you've committed murder. You think that your attitude somehow makes you immune to God's judgment? And yet Christ died for sinners. This should make no sense. I was with a friend of mine in, um, at the Resolve Conference a few years ago. And he, we were standing in line behind some, some folks in Starbucks. And um, it was a very clever way to get into the gospel. Um, the people in front of us were not at the conference, and my friends uh, just reached ahead and said, hey, I want to pay for their, their coffee. And the, these two people turned around and said, why? He says, I just want to do something kind. He says, yeah, but you don't know us. And this way he said, he says, I know, but Jesus Christ knew me, and he did way more than buy me coffee. Right into, let me tell you about myself. And you can see these two folks standing there going, oh, I, didn't, I just wanted coffee. I didn't really barter for this. So. Verse 6, the centrality of the gospel stands Jesus Christ. Let me say it again and again and again. Appreciation of that truth is not the same as application of that truth. We can sign on the dotted line, we love Jesus, we can sing about it, but unless he becomes central and unless he becomes precious to you in day in and day out living, it's just a thought. He, he is the gospel. Go back to chapter one again. Can we say it again? Verse one, the very first opening uh, 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 verse of the, of the book. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the good news, the gospel of God. Verse two, it comes in the Old Testament. Now we pick it up in verse three. The gospel of God concerning his son. The good news isn't a plan that Jesus did for us. The good news is Jesus who did it for us. For us, on behalf of us, instead of us. He took the wrath you and I deserved personally. Sometimes we say it, we sing it, we have a celebration about it so much, we stop, we don't stop long enough to say, He died. He died for us. Death scares us more than anything else. Separation from his father scared him more than anything else. He said so. He was sweating great drops of blood. He was fear and trembling. An angel came to comfort him. He was dreading that. And yet, because of love, he endured the wrath of God for, instead of, and for, as a benefit toward us. Does substitutionary atonement means something to you? Or, are you the captain of your fate? Are you a warrior fighting for your soul? Do you know that you can have eternity in your grasp? You know, the most amazing part of that poem is, to me, is when he says, how charged with punishment the scroll. He's talking about the judgment of God is charged with punishment toward me. But it finds me unafraid. Listen, folks, beloved folks, 
If you are unsaved and not afraid of God, you are in the worst condition. You should be very afraid, frightened, trembling, screaming out like they did in Enfield, what must I do to be saved? We'll get to this in a few verses, but the wrath of God involves an eternal hell. R.C. Sproul says, if you think rightly about hell for very long, you will drop to your knees in worship or you'll go mad. Have you had that experience? Have you thought about the fact that you never get another chance? We're just so, we're so inclined to give people another chance and try it again. There's no appeal in heaven. No appeal. No appeal. It's forever. It doesn't stop. And real people go there every moment. And Christ died for people like that. He died for the ungodly. He died for sinners. He died for enemies. He died for powerless, helpless, morally reprehensible people. I mean, do you hear this and just say, what a God? What a God. Who does that? Wait till we get to verse 8. Who does this? You and I wouldn't. On our best day, we might die for someone we like or someone who's a friend. That's what verse 7 is about. But think of those Hitlers and those Husseins and Timothy McVeighs and you name the person. Would you die for that person? You say, huh, no, I wouldn't. Did you know that God would? Did you know Jesus did? And did you know that you and I are in the category of being ungodly, powerless, sinful enemies of him? Unless you get there, the gospel's not good news. Unless you get there, your whole world will be self-improvement, self-esteem, feeling better, trying harder, being better. We were talking at the men's conference yesterday about the fact that you have to be perfect to go to heaven. That's the standard. It's just brutal. You have to be perfect. That permanently disqualifies you and me, all of us. But one person was perfect. And he, when we get in the middle of chapter 5, it's all about this. He imputes, he credits his righteousness to our account as wicked sinners. I, just never, I can never get over that. And even better, he takes our sin and the spotless lamb of God took that on himself, became sin for us, and died as a curse, Galatians says, before his father. For God so loved the world. His love won't mean much until you understand how unlovely we are. I trust that you understand that. I trust that you know him. If you don't, you came to church on the right day, at the right time. In a few minutes, our prayer room is going to be open to my right. And we'd love to talk to you, pray with you. Don't, 
Don't leave with the conviction of God in your heart. What, I mean, what lunch is that important? Nothing you can do is more important than understanding that you are not the captain of anything in your life. Father, give us worship. It's, it's so hard to stay in verse 6 without leaking into 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11, which explain this further, but we'll give due attention to your word in coming weeks, Lord. Grip us with our helplessness. Grip us with your graciousness, your mercy to die for ungodly sinners, enemies who had no power, dead before you. Never let that truth, that message be dull on our souls. And to think of the God-man, the one and only Savior who did all this and sits at your right hand making intercession for us at this moment. Make us sing, make us say, what a God, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lord, would you do a work in our church? Would you overwhelm us with the gospel in these coming weeks? Would you convict us and floor us with the great glories of the truth of your good news that's your son? Would you please make him so vivid because of your word that our imagination leads to worship? Lord, please change us because of Christ who is alive. He's no longer dead. Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. And if that's true, and we believe it is, makes an unspeakable difference. So come and make a difference. Change us, Lord. We come to you because of your son. We come to you because of his substitutionary atonement for us, on behalf of us, instead of us. Grip our heart with truth that makes us wonder and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>